This last week was not a very good week for commercial space travel. If you've been watching the news, then you saw on Tuesday night we shot a rocket up in the air to go to the International Space Station to resupply it, and within seconds after it lifted off, it exploded into this huge ball of flames there off the Virginia coast. It was a total loss, $200 million plus dollars. People begin to suddenly ask the question, is this a smart thing to be having commercial space travel? And then to follow up, it was on Friday. Virgin Galactic, Sir Richard Branson's company, that is determined to try to take just normal civilian people, people just like you and me, if you can afford $250,000 for a ticket, normal people like you and me to go fly and experience space. They've been making such great progress. I, I saw them when I was up at Oshkosh, uh, the big air show several years ago, and saw Sir Richard Branson and, and saw what they were designing, and it's worked so well. There's a, a small spacecraft, it's called Spaceship uh, Two, and it rides underneath the White Knight, a bigger airplane called White Knight Two, and it'll fly up to about 40,000 feet and then drop the smaller one, which kicks in its rockets and goes flying out into outer space. It's been working so well. This past week, they were trying some new rocket fuel, and when it dropped and then it began to flip the switch to go flying into space, it exploded, killed one pilot, severely injured another. There was wreckage scattered all over the Mojave Desert. And now everybody's going to be asking the question, what happened? Who made a mistake? Why did this happen? As I've been watching all this this week, I couldn't help but go back and think about the 1960s when we were trying to get to the moon before the Russians. Kennedy had given us a, a challenge to land a man on the moon and return safely to Earth before the end of the decade. We were working so hard to dream and to create things. There was a company called Grumman who had received the government contract in order to build the little lunar lander, the one that would come down and land on the moon and then blast off back to the spaceship to bring the astronauts home. Grumman was working so hard to design, to create. They created a prototype, and they began to put it through all of its experiments, things like dropping it down like it would land on the moon to see how it would fare. And one day as they were doing one of those experiments, a leg broke off. That was not a good sign. That wasn't supposed to happen. Tom Kelly was the president of the company. The next morning, he was there in his office, and he was working when a young engineer came in his office, and he laid a file folder on the desk in front of Mr. Kelly. And he said, Mr. Kelly, I'm so sorry. I made a mistake. And Tom Kelly opened it up and begins looking through it, and he's looking through it, and he says, is this why the leg failed? Yes, sir. I made a miscalculation several months ago. And all the calculations since have been based off this for the last several months. I'm so sorry. So when did you find this out, he said? Well, it was about 2 in the morning last night. I mean, after the test failed, I went back to my office and I started checking all of my calculations and I worked my way back those several months until finally I found my mistake. All those calculations have been based on that since then. I'm so sorry. I know, I, I know you may 
have to let me go. Tom Kelly sits there and he looks at it for a few minutes and he says, just get out of here, go home. He gets up and he turns to leave and he says, get some rest. You did a good thing. When you found out you made a mistake, you came to tell me. If we make mistakes and decide to try to sweep them under the rug, we're not going to get to New Jersey, much less than the moon. You did a good thing. Now go home. Get some rest and be back here tomorrow. we got a lot of work to do. When you see this young man walk towards the door and there's this sense of guilt and responsibility, but there's a sense of relief and, and gratitude. And as I watched that, I, I couldn't help but think, that's our relationship with God. It is God who calls us to dream great dreams and to try. And if you and I embrace life and we try, we will make mistakes. We will make mistakes, sometimes unintentionally. And sometimes in our freedom, we will choose poorly. But regardless, you and I can come and stand before God and we confess our sins and we know that we will experience the gift of God's mercy. We talked about that last week. We experience the gift of God's mercy when we come and we stand before Him. In fact, it's when you and I are willing to dream and try and fail and be forgiven that you and I are really able to be used by God to make a difference. This morning, I want to continue on this sermon series, Difference Makers. I said when we started, I really believe that every person wants to live in such a way that they know that what they do matters. Everybody wants to live in a way that we know that what we're doing makes a difference, that our lives stand for something, that when we die, we believe this world will be a better place because we live. That's a basic human innate need and desire that our life stands for something. It matters. And so what we said we were going to do throughout this series is we're going to keep looking at Jesus when he tried to prepare his disciples to go out into the world and be difference makers. And we read where it says Jesus went up on the mountain and he sat down and his disciples came to them and he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, and this week we hear Jesus say, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. To be pure in heart, what does that mean? To be pure in heart does not mean that you are perfect. Doesn't mean that. The disciples before the resurrection were not perfect. The disciples after the resurrection were not perfect. No, it's not about being perfect. But I think it's more akin to what John Wesley, the founder of our Methodist church, meant when he talked about Christian perfection. It's the belief that you and I make a commitment that whatever we say and whatever we do is going to be motivated out of a love for God and a love for others. We will still make mistakes, sometimes unintentionally, sometimes because we choose poorly. We make mistakes. But if we come before God and recenter ourselves again and renew that commitment to be motivated out of a love for God and a love for others, then we can be difference makers. You know, in just a little while, you and I are going to come and lay our commitment cards here on this communion railing. And when you come today, I know we've been talking about how we're going to spend our time and how will we use our talents and how we're going to give our money. 
But you know, when you come together today, there, there's probably no greater commitment that we as a family of faith could make than a commitment for this coming year to say, we're going to strive for Christian perfection. We're going to strive to live in such a way that everything we say and everything we do is motivated out of a love for God and a love for others. That's how you become pure in heart and you will see God. So how do we create a pure heart? That's what I want us to think about this morning. Just two things I want to say. First of all, I believe it's when you and I decide, when we choose, that we are going to trust in God's compassion and His care even more than our own ability. It's really about having faith. Now, you and I have defined faith is not ascribing to a set of beliefs Faith is not saying these are the things that I think and believe. It's not about doctrine and dogma. Faith is about trust. Faith is trusting in God's constant goodwill towards us as children. And if you and I trust in God's constant compassion and His care, even more than our own abilities, then we know we can face life. You know, one of the real dangers in life is it's easy to say, I'm going to trust God and so I'm going to sit back. I don't have to work. I'm not going to give my best. doesn't mean that. You and I got to give our best. We got to try. But I found in my life, I don't know about you, but I found in my life there are times when I'm giving my best and it isn't enough. There's times in my life when I'm facing challenges and I'm giving my best and I can't make it work out. And it's when you decide to have trust in God's constant compassion and care then you know you're going to work with it. You're going to stay with it and you will see God work in your life. The alternative is to become a victim. The alternative is to look at life and say yeah, this wasn't fair. This wasn't right. This shouldn't have happened to me. And so you need to owe me. You need to take care of me. You owe me because this isn't fair. This isn't right. It's easy to become a victim, but we are called to be the people who confront the difficulties in life, and we trust God's compassion and care, and so we don't quit on life, and we will see God. You see God work in your life. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, Ben Carson was here in Oklahoma City. Most of you know Ben Carson. He was the pediatric neurosurgeon at Johns Hopkins Hospital, world-renowned. He's written many books, a movie's been made about his life. Many people say he might be running for president here in the next couple of years. Ben Carson is an amazing man. He was here to be speaking at Town Hall, and we packed this place. That was on a Tuesday morning. Well, on Monday night, I got to be a part of a small group that went to go have dinner with Ben Carson uh, uh, privately. And he's one of my heroes. I was so excited. I got to see him and I said, oh, Dr. Carson, you know, your life has been so inspiring and so amazing. I've shared your stories and my sermons. But I've got to tell you, the person who's really inspiring is your mother. And he laughed and kind of smiled and he said, Yes, my mother. She never chose to be a victim. And if anybody had the right to be a victim, it was my mother. I immediately thought back to her story. You remember? His mother... Sonia, she was uh, one of 21 children, a family of 21 children. 
the family was so poor that she was put into foster care and kind of passed from family to family. Her early life was truly a struggle. She dropped out of school in the third grade. She couldn't read. At 13 years old, she got married. The man was 15 years older than her. And in the first years of their marriage, it went well. He treated her very well. And then they had two children. There was Curtis, and then there two years later was Ben. But it was during this time that he started to withdraw, and he started drinking too much, and he started gambling, and suddenly all their money was going, and now they were becoming poor, and she found that emotionally he had withdrawn. And after 15 years of marriage, she discovered her husband was married to another woman and had another family in Detroit as well. And so she divorced him, and now she was a single mother with two children, 10 and 8, a third grade education, could not read, and she was on her own. Life is not always fair, nor how do you make it? She knew she could clean houses, she could work as a janitor, and so she set to work doing everything she could to keep a roof over their head, food on their table, clothes on their back. But when she gave her best, it still wasn't enough. But she's an incredible lady of faith, and she always was saying to the family, do your best and trust God with the rest. Ben Carson said, we heard that over and over again. She was saying it really for herself. Do your best. Trust God with the rest. She was given her best. And she was able to see God work in her life because somehow they always made it. They took care of the basics, but the bigger problem was the kids were doing horrible in school. In the fifth grade, Ben brought home his first report card and it was straight F's. An F in every class. His nickname was Dummy. And he was the dumbest kid in his class. And it grieved his mom so much. And she was always praying, God, show me. Show me what I need to do to help my children. Show me what I need to do. And one day she was cleaning a home for a bachelor, a man who had done quite well, had a big, beautiful home. And she was in the den wiping and dusting. And there were books over all these shelves and stacked on end tables. And there was a stack up in front of the TV. And as she was dusting the TV, she was able to see the thought occurred to her, he isn't watching TV or all these books wouldn't be stacked here. He came in and she said to him, did you read all these books? He said, yes. You read them all? Yes. Okay. God had spoken. She went home and when she got home, the two boys were home from school. They were watching TV. She turned it off and said, God has spoken. You get to watch two programs a week. Choose them well. Can you imagine going home and telling your children or grandchildren, you now get to watch two TV shows a week? They were not happy, but she was in charge. Two a week, we're going to the library. It is free. You get to choose two books and bring them home. You'll read two books a week and write a book report on each of them for me. Now, of course, they didn't know she couldn't read. So they wrote the book reports, and she always would have a headache, or I've lost my glasses. Read them to me. And they would say years later, we had no idea she couldn't read whatever we were writing. We read her the book reports. And the strangest thing happened. They fell in love with learning. By the seventh grade, Ben Carson was the smartest kid in his class. When his brother Curtis graduated from high school, he got a scholarship to college, he went on and earned his Ph.D., and he became a rocket scientist. 
When Ben graduated high school, he too got a scholarship. He went to medical school, became a pediatric neurosurgeon. Both did pretty well. When the dinner was over, Dr. Carson stood up to speak to the group. And he came back to this subject. And he began to say how one of his concerns was when he looked at our society today, he felt so many people felt a sense of entitlement, that the world owed them something. And he said it's because they've chosen a victim mentality. And he said if you choose a victim mentality, you can be sure you are going down. But if you refuse to be a victim, you will rise up and make a difference. You and I deal with life sometimes, it's pretty hard. But when you make a decision, you're going to trust God's compassion and God's care and not give in to being a victim of anger and bitterness and cynicism, you'll see God. You will see God work in your life and you'll be grateful. You know, one of the fascinating things, if I've done 40 years of ministry now, I've never found a person who's a victim who is grateful. And I've never seen people who are grateful be a victim. This past Friday night, Marsh and I were at home and we were ready for Halloween. It's always a fun time. It's become such a big deal in our world today. And we don't really kind of go over the top, but we go out and get our candy and we're ready to hand it out. And so we flipped on the front porch light and we were at home and Sure enough, the kids started coming by, ring the doorbell, and trick or treat, and we'd give them the candy, and they'd run on. We had a good time that night. It went on for a while. And finally, it started growing late, and we had the last two trick or treaters. And when the last two came, they had to be the cutest of the entire night. And the last two who showed up, one was, was dressed as Minnie Mouse, and she had on her ears, and she can strike a pose, and Oh, she was having such a good time as Minnie Mouse. And the other one was, must have, she was probably four and a half. The other one was her brother. He must have been about a year and a half. He was dressed like the Count, and he was so pretty and so, so handsome. The way he was all dressed up, you know, and trick-or-treat. They were the cues to the entire night. And when I looked closely, I realized they were my grandkids. <laughs> Our daughter-in-law, Krista was in from out of town down in Temple and so she had taken the kids out trick-or-treating all night long and we were the last stop on the, uh, the journey and so they came in the house and we got to visit with them for a while and we had such a good time. They finally went on their way and Marsh and I started talking about the night. I said, you know, wasn't it interesting? You know, when the kids came by and they'd say trick-or-treat and we'd give them the stuff, some kids would say, thanks. Thank you very much. Thank you. And they'd run on. Other kids trick-or-treat, and you put it in, and they're gone, on to the next place. And I said, you know, there are two kind of people in this world. There are those who receive and are grateful. And there are those who get, and all they think about is getting more. It starts young. Life is not always easy. But if you and I make a fundamental decision that we're going to trust God's compassion and care, you will see God working in your life and you will be grateful. You'll love God. And as Wesley said, try to do everything and say everything motivated out of a love for God. But secondly, 
It's amazing when you start to love God and you've made the decision to trust in God that you start to see other people. It may be that you're in a moment of great need and struggle, but you still see other people. It's what happens. Saturday morning, I came up to work on the sermon, finished things up, and I was over in our offices, and I went up, and I was getting ready to go up the stairs when I heard people in the kitchen cooking for mobile meals. And so I went around to go speak to them, and they were working so hard. Man, they had food everywhere, and they were washing dishes. And, and I watched what they were doing, and I started thinking, you know, we do this every Saturday. Every Saturday, 52 weeks out of the year. 52 weeks out of the year, we feed 100 people across the city. Different people come in, they cook, they clean up, others pick up the food, they head out on their routes. And the food we take is the kind of food any one of us would be happy to go to a restaurant and pay for. We send out great meals. And this family was in there, they were working, and they were cleaning up, and we were talking. And when I walked away, I thought, you know, they're not doing this because they're bored. They're not doing this because they have time on their hands. They're doing it because these are people who live out of a spirit of gratitude because of their faith in Christ and what they've seen happen in their lives. They see the need of people and that's why they're doing it. The fascinating thing is if you decide you want to bless others, you'll see God in the face of others. In just a few moments now, we're going to come and lay our commitment cards here on this communion railing. And when you come, let me encourage you, do not come out of guilt. Do not come out of a sense of obligation. But I hope you'll come out of a spirit of gratitude. Trusting in God's compassion and His care. I hope you'll come because you see others and you want to bless life to share God's love and bring hope to the world. That is our mission. It's how you become a difference maker. When you see others, you'll see God in the face of others. So, some of you may have seen on the news just recently a fascinating story about a man named Nicholas Hinton. Nicholas Hinton was um, over in the Republic of Czechoslovakia, in, in the Czech Republic, and he was there to receive the Order of the White Heart Award. It's kind of like our Presidential Medal of Freedom. The President of the Czech Republic was there to give him the award. Fascinating thing is that Nicholas Hinton is now 105. 105, and he is sharp as a tack. I mean, his mind is sharp. He can speak. He's an incredible person. And he'd been honored before by the Czech Republic, but he was there now for this special award, as I say, at 105 just last week. But his story and why the Czech people love him so much goes all the way back to 1938. Nicholas was living in London, and he was a stockbroker. He was doing very well, 29 years old, life was good. And when it came towards Christmas, he booked himself a vacation in the Swiss Alps to spend Christmas there in Switzerland. And he was looking forward to going when he got a letter from a friend in Prague, Czechoslovakia, saying, cancel your vacation and come here. And so he did. He went there to Czechoslovakia, and you remember by 38... The Nazis were on the move. They had invaded Czechoslovakia and they were pushing across the border. And now they had already been threatening Jews and Jews had been disappearing and, 
And there were so many refugees and people fleeing and Jews were now trapped up against the border and they knew what was starting to happen. And Nicholas went and looked at these people. He was not royalty. He was not some big business leader. He was not a politician. He was not a super wealthy person. He was like you and me. But he saw God in the face of these people. And so it was he came back to England. And he said, can we start letting children come as refugees to England? We could bring them here. And they said, if you have a foster family and you can put up a deposit to show they can be cared for. So Nicholas stopped working at what he was doing. He began running around England collecting money and finding foster families. Will you be a foster family? Will you be a foster family? Would you be a foster family? He got these people to volunteer and raise the money. And then he ran back to Prague and he came to the people and said, Give me your children. I will take them to England. We will protect them. And when this is over, you can come be reunited with them. Will you give me your children? Now, can you imagine? You're fearful for your life. You're fearful for your child's life. And here's a stranger saying, Trust me with your child. You know you may never see them again. What would you do? They lined the street. He started taking the children, putting them on a train, and they would get out of Czechoslovakia. And as soon as those were out and, and, and put there with the people, and, and he would run back, raise more money, more foster homes, and he would go back and bring another load. And then he would go back. And so he began running this as much as he could. In the end, 669 children were brought out of Czechoslovakia. He'd been working harder than ever before, and finally he now had his biggest train load lined up, 250 children, all with sponsors waiting at the train station. And it was September the 1st, 1939. And that was the official beginning of World War II, and the Nazis closed the border. And at the train station were all these sponsors waiting for the children. And they never came. And those 250 children were never heard of again. Almost none of the parents were ever reunited with their children. When Nicholas realized he could no longer rescue any more children, he signed up to fight. He became a pilot and he fought in World War II. When the war was over, he got married and he never said a word. And all the other years of the war, it was just kind of all forgotten what had happened for 50 years. When Nicholas went and was finally in his early 80s, one day he and his wife Greta were upstairs in the attic, kind of going through to clean out the attic, and they came across a scrapbook. And it had all the pictures of these children and all their names and letters from them. And his wife said, what is this? And he told her the story. And she said, Nicholas, we've got to tell the story. There will be children here in England who will want to see you, who will want to love on you. We need to tell your story. And so she did. And it was easy to document. It was easy to verify. And so what happened was, in that day, they had a, a television show, kind of like, you remember, That's Your Life, where they'd get someone and bring them out and talk about their life, and you're talking all about it, and they find someone that you didn't know it's going to still be around and they bring this person to show up and they suddenly see you and it's all very special. 
Well, they brought Nicholas Winton for that kind of a TV show. And they started putting up the pictures of all the children and talking about their letters and what Nicholas had done. And finally, after they'd been doing all that, they said, and tonight we have a special guest. We have with us tonight Vera Guessing. Vera Guessing is here. And Nicholas, she's sitting right next to you. And he turned and looked at her, and this woman has tears streaming down her cheek. And he starts crying. And they just start hugging each other's neck. And then they said, is there anybody else here tonight who owes their life to Nicholas Hinton? And everybody in the audience stood up, row after row after row. All were children and their children. They were all there to say thank you. He's now 105, being honored again by the Czech Republic. You see, they now have a statue of Nicholas there in Prague at the train station. It's of Nicholas as a young man standing there holding a child waiting for the train. The young people of England are very curious about this man in World War II, as you can imagine. And a 16-year-old high school student had the privilege of interviewing him. She came to him and, and she said, tell me about World War II. What was it like? How did you get the kids? How did it all happen? She asked all of her questions. But when she came to the end, she said, is there any advice you'd like to give to my generation? Anything you'd like to tell my generation? And this old man kind of rubbed his chin and sat there and thought for a moment. And then he said, don't live a life where you just try to do no wrong. Every day, be prepared for the opportunity to do good. Every day, be prepared for the opportunity to do good. When you and I, everything we say and everything we do is motivated out of a love for God and a love for others, well, you'll see God. When you trust in God's compassion and care, you'll see God working in your life and you will be grateful. Your eyes will be opened and you will see others. You will see God in the face of others. That's how you and I become difference makers. Truly, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.